I think we're all acquainted with the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And it's common for us to be driven crazy by the little things we find annoying in our closest relationships. This is especially true in our families. Growing up as the oldest of three, I always knew what to say or do to get under my sibling's skin and generally relished the opportunity to do it. There was something oddly satisfying about hearing their howls of anger and rage after landing a well-placed verbal jab. I'm sure that many of you have experienced the same feeling of, of smug satisfaction, or perhaps you've been on the other end of it and felt the better, bitter sting of jealousy and resentment after being humiliated. The harsh words of those who are closest to us often cut deepest. The issue of rivalry within the family of God is the background for our passage this morning. Fights and quarrels have arisen, and James confronts these Christians about the real issues that are at work within their hearts, driving them to, in his words, speak evil against one another. Using imagery from the Old Testament, he calls out their sin and then points them toward the hope in the grace of God and calls them to repentance. Our church can gain wisdom and instruction from James's treatment of these issues, so it's important that we listen to what he has to say and learn from him. God has given us these words to help us navigate life together in a manner that pleases him and is benefiting the body of Christ. This morning's sermon will be broken down into three sections. In verses one through five, we'll examine how the pursuit of our own pleasure makes us enemies of God. In verses six through 10, we will see that God offers grace and repentance to his enemies. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, James will show us how our sin challenges God's ruling authority. Let's read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 together. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. As James frequently does, he begins this section with a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? We've seen him do this before. 
For example, when addressing the sin of partiality, or when exhorting and instructing readers on the dangers of self-delusion when it comes to faith and works, and when teaching on the importance of taming the tongue and exercising wisdom. As Kyle mentioned last week, these questions are intended to be diagnostic and not punitive. James wants the people of God to contemplate on these issues that he's raising so they might be aware of the temptations and sins that seem to be ensnaring them. We'll see him ask several more questions throughout this passage, and I'd like to encourage you to consider them as we go. We're not exactly sure the nature, what the nature of the fights and quarrels are, but the context of the letter may give us some clues. Looking back to chapter 3, it is possible that these quarrels are occurring among aspiring, those aspiring to leadership positions within the church. James has warned that not many brothers should aspire to become teachers because they will be judged more stringently. Instead, he has encouraged the wise among them to put off jealousy and selfish ambition and to pursue true wisdom, which is marked by holiness, peace, gentleness, reason, and sincerity. As commentator Doug Moo says, the topic of fights and quarrels does not appear to be a new topic, but rather a continuation of the discussion of previous issues. Whoever is in view, James gets to the underlying reasons why this conflict is occurring. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Once again, Douglas Moo points out that the word that the ESV translates as passion can also be translated as pleasure, and that the root of the word is where we get our term hedonism. It is used in several places throughout the New Testament, all with negative connotation. For example, in 2 Peter 2, speaking of the unrighteous, Peter says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. So what James is addressing is not simply some sort of misplaced enthusiasm. These are not parties who are well-meaning, but, but in their exuberance may be experiencing some unintentional personality conflict. No, James is saying that the root of this strife is that they are seeking their own desires at the expense of other Christians. How are these fights and quarrels manifesting themselves? Verse two, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The preference of personal pleasure has apparently led to some very serious consequences. Notice that James points back to two of the 10 commandments that are being broken, murder and covetousness. Although it is unlikely that actual murder has taken place, James has nonetheless made it plain that these actions undertaken by the, those engaged in this conflict are truly serious sins. They have broken God's law. They are acting like hearers only of the word and not doers. They say they have faith, but their works may demonstrate that it is not the kind of faith that saves. Brothers and sisters, we should consider how chasing our own personal ambitions and desires can have devastating effects within the church. Though our congregation is not presently experiencing these kinds of trials, Kyle and John pointed out to me that this strife seems to presuppose a group of people who are intimately familiar with one another, just like we prayed for this morning. By God's grace, we pray that we will be a church that knows and loves one another well. Because Jesus has saved us and joined us to himself, we are joined to one another spiritually. This is one of the things that we celebrate each week during the Lord's Supper. 
that we are God's people and that we are members of Christ and of each other. It is also one of the reasons that we've recently begun meeting together in fellowship groups to foster those relationships and deepen them. It's good for us to, uh, it's good for us to ask ourselves whether we are prioritizing our relationships in the church. So that we might so that we might fully more fully live out the intimacy that Christ has established with and among his bride. In his mercy, we pray that the Lord will give us the desire for intimacy and would protect us from the sin and consequence of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James's warning is helpful to us in that as we grow together, we might be watchful and guard against the passions of the flesh that lead to fights and quarrels. James identifies additional motivations, heart conditions that underlie the selfish pursuit of pleasure that is wreaking havoc in the church. Continuing in verse two, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? These verses represent a sort of climax in the book of James. His various instructions and warnings have been building to this point where now he succinctly summarizes the heart of the matter and to a certain extent, the whole of his letter. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Let's look at this more closely. James tells his readers in verse two that they do not have because they do not ask and that they ask and do not receive because they ask wrongly. What exactly is the thing that these Christians do not have? Why, what are they either A, failing to ask for or B, asking for in the wrong way? If we look back to chapter one, James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will, re that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." In chapter three, James says that this wisdom is from, that is from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. These Christians are lacking the wisdom that comes from God that brings peaceful unity. Instead of a harvest of righteousness sown in peace, there is jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and vile practices like covetousness, anger, murder in the heart, and evil speech against each other. James then borrows a prophetic image from the Old Testament, calling his readers an adulterous people and warning them that seeking friendship with the world will ultimately lead to their rejection by God. This primarily Jewish audience would have clearly understood the comparison between them and their ancestors who were accused by the prophets of turning away from the Lord and toward idols. In our reading from Hosea 4 earlier this morning, we saw that the faithlessness and lack of knowledge of the Lord in the land by the people of Israel caused them to turn away from God who had freed them from the Egyptians. 
God compared their idolatry and faithless acts to adultery. God was their true husband who loved and provided for them. But instead of honoring him as such, they wandered off after foreign gods. Israel was a faithless bride. By invoking this language, James is trying to get his hearers to see the danger of their sin. These are serious matters. One cannot both befriend the world and expect to befriend God. God is a righteously jealous husband, and he will not share his bride, purchased by the blood of his son, with anyone else. James is a book of stark language, written in very black and white terms. And frankly, sometimes James can seem harsh. However, if we consider the context into which he's writing, I think we can gain an understanding of what he's trying to communicate both to his first readers and to us. This book is addressed to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. These were Christians scattered from Jerusalem by the strange and kind providence of God under threat of persecution. Jerusalem was the location of the events concerning Jesus' death and resurrection and was the center of Jewish religious life. Believing Christian Jews who had been driven from their home might be confused as to what was happening. If Jesus really was the Messiah, why were they facing such opposition from both Jewish religious leaders and Roman authorities? The original dispersion describes the judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel, whereby they were destroyed by the Assyrians and their people were scattered throughout the world. Was this dispersion that these first century Christians were experiencing an act of God's judgment as well? The pressure to compromise, in this backdrop, the pressure to compromise with the culture and their new surroundings was significant. To avoid further hardship, it might have been tempting to attend Christian worship while still maintaining the outward observances of Jewish religious practice. They could look like their neighbors while still believing Jesus was the Messiah, right? Or perhaps these islands of Christians were tempted to employ the means of the world to defend themselves against further persecution. They could continue to identify as believers in Jesus, but they might also seek to organize and rely on political favor with wealthy locals and other means of power to ensure their survival. It's easy to see how strong the temptation to compromise their faith might have been. But James is warning them against the consequences of compromise. What may look like sensible and reasonable compromises to the world, James calls faithless rejection of the Lord. And just as their ancestors were cut off from the land due to their idolatry, so too are these people at risk of being cut off from Christ by making friends with the world. Brothers and sisters, members of the 12 tribes of the dispersion residing in Spring, Texas, how are we tempted to make friends with the world and put ourselves at enmity with God? What does friendship with the world look like in our day and time? Perhaps the pleasures that tempt us are money and comfort. We live in the wealthiest period in human history and reside in one of the wealthiest counties in the wealthiest nation on earth. Our homes, clothes, vehicles, technology, ability to travel, and lifestyles are pleasures that even the richest rulers on earth couldn't have imagined only 150 years ago. 
We become accustomed to the comfort and security that these things bring, and it is easy to idolize them. Perhaps the temptation that we may most be susceptible to is to idolize our sense of belonging. Humans were made in God's image, and we are by nature social creatures who were made for relationships. We know that no one enjoys being left out or being thought of as odd, or worse yet, actually being despised. None of us wants to be a target of cancel culture or to be told that we're on the wrong side of history for professing a historical, orthodox, Christian faith in opposition to the cultural and political zeitgeist. Compromise here can take two forms. We either decide that holding firm to our convictions is too costly and we capitulate, or we can become reactionaries who adopt the strategies, tactics, and weapons of worldly wisdom, pointing them outward to defend the church and our Christian heritage. Both approaches are attempts at friendship with the world. And both put us at odds with Christ, who came to bring the truth of God to a world in darkness and to redeem his enemies from the wrath of God by the power of his perfect life, his atoning death, and resurrection. In a world in which the temptation to compromise our faith and to turn to worshiping ourselves and idols is both real and alluring, what hope do we have? As John likes to say, are we just supposed to white-knuckle this thing called life? doing as many good works as we possibly can in the hope that God will not find fault with us in the end? Thankfully, beloved, the Lord gives us the greatest hope imaginable in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This brings us to our second point, that God offers grace and repentance to his enemies. Verse six, but he gives more grace. How are we to fight the temptation to be double-minded and be an double-minded and adulterous people? We are to rely on the grace of God given us his son, given us to his son, given to us in his son Jesus. These words, but he gives more grace, are somewhat jarring as they appear so closely in the letter to James's accusation, you adulterous people. We're meant to see this contrast and to pause and dwell on the depth and the richness of the mercies of Christ. Continuing, we read, Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. When we are faced with trials and the, temp when we are faced with trials and the temptation to compromise with the world is at its strongest, we should admit our weakness, confess our inability to save ourselves, and anchor our hope and trust in Jesus, who defeated death on the cross, and who promises to draw near to us in our time of need and to sustain our faith and to help us persevere. This phrase, but he gives more grace, brings to mind Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Do you hear the echoes of James's words in Paul's letter to the Ephesians? 
He's teaching the same truth about our God who generously pours out his grace on sinners that we would be united to Christ and glorify God by living lives of holiness that he has prepared for us. James continues by instructing his readers what an appropriate response to the grace of God looks like. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your <clears throat> cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It may seem odd that James is telling his readers to turn their laughter to mourning and their joy to gloom. Shouldn't they be joyful and happy at the prospect that God has shown mercy? Of course they should. It is truly good news that God forgives sinners who put their faith in Christ. But James's point isn't that they should lack appreciation for the gospel, but rather that to fully appreciate the magnificent graciousness of grace, they must first understand the utter sinfulness of sin. A right view of sin should evoke repentance. James is describing what repentance should look like in the lives of these believers. When they consider their sin, when they consider their fighting and their quarreling and their evil speech, their first reaction should be that of godly remorse. This passage is helpful as we consider the nature of our, of our response to sin. How do you respond to sin? When you, how do you respond to your sin when you've been confronted with it and you agree that you have actually sinned? I'm not talking about a situation in which you defiantly refuse to acknowledge that sin has occurred, but rather one in which you're convinced of the truthfulness of the charge against you. Do you find that you're indifferent to it? Do you excuse the peccadilloes in your life because God is gracious and forgives sins, thereby presuming on God's grace? Or perhaps do you respond with frustration or embarrassment that your sins had become evident despite your best effort to keep them concealed? Are you less concerned with rebelling against your creator than you are with your pride and what others think of you? Is your response perhaps to make promises to God, ultimately ones you can't keep, about how this will be the last time you lie, lust, gossip, steal, get drunk, try to control your spouse or your children, or engage in harmful or abusive behavior towards others? Do you promise to try harder if God will just give you one more chance and it will never happen again? I know that in my own life, I've responded to my sin in these ways. Many days I continue to struggle with these kinds of responses. I can easily rationalize why a particular sin is no big deal or why I should, not, why I should be angry about being caught in my sin or why I just need to try harder and do more good works to make up for my failures. But beloved, these are all sinful responses to sin. These are all forms of pseudo-repentance that Paul calls worldly grief producing death. How then should we repent with godly grief that leads to salvation? First, we need to acknowledge that our, the revelation of our sin is God's grace to us. God showing us our sin is merciful. This is a point that we frequently emphasize with our children, <laughs> both with their sin and with our own sin. Second, 
We must agree with God that our sin is rebellion against God's right rule over us. As creator, he has a right over creation to rule creation as he sees fit. We have no right to usurp or cast off his authority, and any attempt to do so is deserving of judgment. This is what James means by submitting and humbling ourselves. We need to know our place, to accept it, and acknowledge that truth to God. Third, we must turn away from sin in thinking and in practice. James exhorts us to resist the devil. To resist requires effort and resolve. Resistance to the schemes and temptations of the devil do not happen passively. This turning away from evil requires a turning to righteousness by faith in Jesus. When James tells his readers to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, he's not not commending good hygiene and a low cholesterol diet. No, he is once again drawing us to the Old Testament imagery of the purification required of God's people before they were able to worship him in the temple. God is holy, and his worshipers are to be pure and undefiled. Finally, we see that repentance will be costly. There should be a real sense of sorrow toward offending the God whom we love, but that sorrow will also often accompany a sense of loss over the sin that we're turning away from. Sin is desirable and brings us pleasure when we're engaged in it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Giving up things we once loved brings a sense of loss. James paints such a weighty portrait of repentance that you might be asking, how is this kind of repentance even possible? With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Remember that James's focus is not human effort, but God's grace. It's God's grace from beginning to end that both grants repentance and sees that it achieves its end, our salvation. Look again at the amazing gospel promises that James describes. God gives grace to the humble. The devil, the one who accuses you of your sin before God, will flee from you. God himself will draw near to you and the Lord will exalt you. And what causes all these amazing promises to come to pass? Human effort? No, it's God's grace. Our gracious God sent his son into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. Jesus was not double-minded, nor did he have unclean hands or an impure heart. He had no divided loyalties, but sought to do all that the Father had sent him to do. What was his mission? To humble himself by becoming a man and perfectly obeying the law of God. The clearest example of this obedience is his his temptation by the devil. After Jesus resisted his offer of worldly power, what did the devil do? He fled. Then being sinless, Jesus took upon himself our sin and suffered unto death. He let his laughter become weeping and his joy become gloom for us. And because of his obedience, God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand above all things and crowned him king of king, king of kings and lord of lords. 
By the power of the Holy Spirit, we who forsake our sins and trust Christ are put in union with him in his, both in his humility and in his exaltation. So I exhort you, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted Christ for forgiveness, do not wait another moment. Take hold of him by faith and receive the gifts of reconciliation with God and eternal life that he offers. There is no reason to delay. We do not know what day will be our last, and God has appointed all men to face judgment <clears throat> face judgment after death. Appearing before God and bringing your own righteousness to offer him will only result in condemnation. Seek the Lord today while he may be found. Finally, we see that sin challenges God's ruling authority. After making an impassioned plea for humility and repentance, James turns his attention to close out the matter of fights and quarrels among these believers. Interestingly, he returns to the topic of speech, something he spilled quite a lot of ink on in chapter 3. He digs deeper into this issue to help his readers understand what sins truly lie at the heart of the use of evil speech. Verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Those who speak, the one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. At least one aspect of, these, of the fights and quarrels that James is dealing with appears to involve these Christians speaking evil against each other. James has previously examined the danger that the tongue presents to the unity of God's people by comparing it to a fire, a world of unrighteousness, a restless evil full of deadly poison. However, he brings to light a new aspect of this sin that is particularly damning. Those who would speak evil against a brother speak evil against the law, and by logical necessity, the lawgiver. By seeking their own pleasures and selfish ambitions, these men have attempted to usurp God's authority and have placed themselves in judgment over him. To be clear, Jesus calls Christians to judge one another rightly, according to God's word. When we judge each other rightly, we make our brothers and sisters aware of their sin and lead them to repentance. In chapter 2, after teaching that the one who violates even one part of God's law is guilty of the whole thing, James encourages us to speak and act as those judged under the law of liberty. Right judgment of our sin by the law of God is good. But there is a way for believers to judge each other in unrighteousness. We see this example here. Out of jealousy and covetousness, certain members of the church are likely engaged in gossip, lies, and harsh words against other believers. Those who have heard the commands, you shall not lie and you shall not covet, have chosen to ignore them because they believe that their ends justify their means. In doing so, they have declared by their actions that their judgment is superior to God's and that their standards are more important than God's. They are hearers of the law, but not doers, and are self-deceived. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Beloved, in what relationships or circumstances have we put ourselves in the place of God? This can be a particularly difficult sin to root out because we can judge people in our minds even without saying a word. We're given to attitudes of superiority 
over those with whom we are in conflict. We might secretly desire for them to fail or to get what they deserve according to our own desires. When we harbor these feelings, James wants us to see that it is akin to cosmic treason. It is God who made us in his image, and thus he has the right to rule over us. He is kind and patient toward us, but he will not share his glory with another. When we set ourselves up in unrighteous judgment over our neighbors, we rob God of his glory. Instead of making ourselves judges of the law, let us be both hearers and doers of the law of liberty. In doing so, we will recognize the mercy we have been shown and will judge each other with mercy. As James tells us, mercy triumphs over justice. So in conclusion, this morning we've seen how the pursuit of our own pleasure makes us enemies of God. We've seen how God offers grace and repentance to his enemies. And we've seen how our sin challenges God's ruling authority. We pray that we will continue to grow together in love and care for one another, and that we will manifest this and that we will manifest it, and that this will manifest itself in a godly intimacy that is befitting the body of Christ. We know that intimacy can lead to conflict, which left unchecked by pride and jealousy can result in sinful quarrels, infighting, and evil speech against each other. By listening to what James is teaching us, we can be aware of these pitfalls and strive to avoid them. But we can also be thankful that we have a God who is at work among us, who gives us grace in our sin and mercifully restores us to himself and each other when we desperately need him most. Beloved, consider the blessing it is to know and to serve such a marvelous God. Let's pray. Our most gracious heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word from your servant, James. We thank you that you have brought this to our attention today, that we might consider the blessing of Christian unity, that we might confess that we are not wise and that we need your wisdom to live lives of peace and unity as the body of Christ. Father, we pray that as we consider our own sins, both those that we commit with our mouth and outwardly and those that we harbor in our hearts, that you would grant us true repentance, that by your grace, you would shed the light of your son Jesus on our hearts, that you would take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh and turn us away from our sin and towards faith in your son. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection and ascension. We thank you that now he lives in your presence forever and ever as our mediator, advocating on our behalf for forgiveness and restoration to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.